Good morning. We are looking this morning at Romans chapters 9 to 11. So you might want to keep your Bible open uh, or your phone um, because we're going to be delving into it together. Um, But before we do that, and as June pulls up the uh, PowerPoint, let's just invite the Lord to come amongst us. Lord, we thank you that you're already here. We thank you that you've been moving in our hearts as we've been singing these glorious songs. We thank you that you are holy. And we fall at your feet this morning, Lord. We worship you. We thank you that you are holy through and through. And that you are so full of love. We thank you for your word to us this morning. As we delve into it now, Lord, we pray that you'll reveal yourself to us. Help us to see Jesus this morning, we pray. And in the way which only you can do, would you just bring out from this word a message tailored for each one of us. Lord, we all have different needs and we thank you that you can meet us where we are. And so we pray, Lord, that you'll speak this morning, speak into our hearts. Challenge us afresh. Refresh our hearts. Enthuse us, we pray. Help us to see Jesus. For we ask it for his glory. Amen. Amen. Well, you may have seen uh, in the news just recently that the mystery that has been puzzling people for the last 87 years is just about to be solved. Um. This on Amelia Earhart, uh, the icon of women's aviation, uh, disappeared with her plane um, as she attempted to become the first woman to fly solo around the world in 1937. And a former U.S. pilot sold his property business uh, to fund a deep sea search for the missing plane, and he believes that the team. Uh, using an unmanned submersible, has taken a sonar image that reveals the location. He told NBC News, you'd be hard-pressed to convince me that anything uh, that's anything but an aircraft, for one, and two, that it's not Amelia's aircraft. I think myself that it is the greatest mystery of all time. Well, we may not agree with that conclusion, as Romans 9 to 11 throw up some pretty big mysteries for us to consider, such as God's sovereignty and his plan for Israel, which is such a current hot topic. Uh, These chapters, chapters 9 to 11, have been described by one as full of problems, as a hedgehog is full of prickles. And uh, another has described the book of Romans as eight chapters of gospel at the beginning, four of application at the end, and three chapters of puzzle in the middle. Well, don't expect all the answers here this morning, okay? Uh, Countless books have been written on these topics, um, and we will doubtless doubtless, uh, be discussing some of these topics in Life Group this week. So if you, if you want your, some homework before meeting up this week in home, in your life groups, 
then read Romans chapters 9 to 11, okay? And for any visitors who have just discovered us online this morning, this is session number 7 in our uh, series, in our studies in the letter to Romans, and it's entitled Mystery. And using Andrew Ollerton's very helpful guide, we have scaled the mountain to its peak, Uh, Last week we considered Romans chapter 8, didn't we? The hope that we have in Jesus. And when we come to faith in Jesus, we have a new identity and a new inheritance. And we are adopted into God's amazing family. And we we become his children and we become heirs to all of God's riches. And God actually takes up residence within us by his Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, a foretaste, a guarantee of all that is to come. It's like standing on the mountaintop with a 360 degree view, isn't it? And we see the big picture and all of life's challenges suddenly seem that much smaller when we get the perspective right. And God's plan, which is already in process, is to restore us and all of creation. And we can enjoy the big picture, but we also need to know what is our role, what is my role here today. And the truth is that if you climb mountains, then there will be times when you become engulfed in thick mist. When I climbed Ben Nevis as a teenager, I experienced baking heat and cold torrential rain and this view at the summit, (laughs) thick fog. And I understand that this highest mountain is covered in cloud 300 days of the year. And when I looked online, The evidence seemed to support that view. (laughs) And Paul's argument in Romans chapters 9 to 11 feel a bit like the mist closing in after we've just had a view of the summit. And it may be helpful to remind ourselves of this very important truth, that God is sovereign. Okay, when you're puzzling it all through this week in your life groups, remember this truth. God is sovereign. There's some lovely verses in Colossians 1. And it states that Jesus is the visible image of God who is invisible. Through Jesus... God created all things, and Jesus is supreme over all his creation. He made the things we can see. He made the things we can't see. He is supreme above all things. And for God to be sovereign of all things, whether visible or invisible, he has to be all-knowing. Sometimes Judy and I will sit down and uh, we'll watch a film 
Uh, and we scroll through loads of titles. I expect you do the same. You sit down on a Saturday night and think, what shall we watch? And uh, you're scrolling through all the titles until you find one that's vaguely appealing. And so we settle back, got the popcorn ready, we're all ready to go, and we watch it. And often, when we're well into the film, one of us will turn to the other and say, I think we've seen this before. (laughs) I think it ends like this. And so it does. God knows the end from the beginning. He knows how things will turn out. He knows that Satan is a defeated foe. He is not only outside of time, but he created time. So that's how he knows when time will be brought to an end. And God knows all our hearts. He knows those who will place their faith in Jesus and receive his forgiveness. He's seen the film. God, in his mercy, has given us free will to choose what we do with our lives and ultimately whether we accept or reject his forgiveness. When God first created man and woman in his likeness, he made an incredibly risky decision. Possibly the riskiest decision he would ever make. He didn't create us as robots, but he gave us free will. He gave us the power to make our own choices, to decide our own fate. And God created Adam and Eve to have a moral capacity to rebel against their creator. The sculptures could spit at the sculptor. The characters in the play could rewrite the lines. The created could reject the creator. They were free agents. But God is still God. We cannot line manage God. He does not conform to our ways of thinking. He does not owe us an explanation. As Job discovered, if you read the last five chapters of the book of Job. And we might find this a very hard truth to absorb. We assume that God is there to to answer all our questions and that he will help us to fulfill all our dreams. We live in an age which prizes scientific knowledge and explanations, so we, we don't like to tolerate too much mystery, do we? We want an answer for everything, and we expect the answer when we ask. The risk is that we swap the living God for a more manageable, domesticated deity that is a figment of our imagination. In the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan, the lion, is a picture of God. And when Lucy asks if he is safe, 
Mr. Beaver replies, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Naslan is not a tame lion. He is wild and on the loose. He cannot be controlled or manipulated or bullied. God's untamed nature reflects both his majesty and his unpredictable goodness. I don't want a God that I can understand. That would be bringing him down to my level. And there is something deeply reassuring about the overwhelming majesty and the power and the greatness of God. The last thing we fragile humans want is a God who is just as confused as we are. We need to stand in awe and reverence of a God who created all things, who stands outside of time, but stoops to enter our world, to meet us in our need. God is not only sovereign, but he has a plan. And what we can know for certain is that God has planned a way by which fallen mankind can be rescued if they believe in his son, Jesus Christ. We can know for sure that those who believe are adopted into his family as children of God. As we learned last week in Romans chapter 8, we can be certain that God has predetermined that all those who are born again into his family will spend eternity in heaven with him. And we can rest in the knowledge that our Father God is in absolute control of his universe and that his plans are perfect. There is no injustice in God's kingdom. You can see that in chapter 9, verse 14. Our salvation is watertight because It was God who devised the rescue plan in Jesus. And as we discovered last week, as we reveled in it this week in life groups, Romans 8 verse 35, there is no separation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Wow, that's the truth to hang on to, isn't it? Through all of life's challenges, there is no separation. Sometimes those clouds come in between and we can't see him, but he sees us and there is no separation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But our salvation is not through anything that we have done, is it? As we've already discovered in the early part of Romans, we cannot secure our salvation any more than we can flap our arms wildly and fly. We can't scale the mountain by ourselves. We come in simple faith, acknowledging that we need saving and we need forgiveness for all the wrong in our lives. You know, Roman society was obsessed with hierarchy and through their wealth, 
People could buy them, buy uh, their way into the most privileged positions. But God's kingdom is not like that. Salvation is not just for the rich or the powerful, but for everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That was in our reading this morning, verse 13 of chapter 10. We can't buy our salvation. We can't earn it. We don't uh, receive merit points every time we do something good. We simply receive salvation by throwing ourselves on God's mercy. It is God's free gift, although it comes at such a great cost, the life of his dear son. We cannot earn salvation through what we do, nor can we merit salvation by who we are, our DNA. And throughout the letter of Romans, Paul stresses that Jews and Gentiles are equally sinful. And we both, Jews and Gentiles, need a saviour. There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile because Christ is the Lord of all, chapter 10 and verse 12. And whether Jew or Gentile, we can only receive salvation through faith in Christ, in Jesus' finished work at the cross. Anti-Jewish politics forms a crucial part of the background of Paul's letter to the Romans. Anti-Semitism was as intense in Paul's day as it is today. And Paul traces Israel's history. And uh, in chapter 9, particularly from verse 10 onwards, Paul mentions Jacob and Esau, born as twins. And God had predetermined that Jacob would be the chosen one, not Esau, who was the firstborn. And this subverted an ancient custom, whereby the firstborn inherited a greater blessing. And even though Jacob was deceptive and insecure and proud, he wasn't the most promising prospect, was he? Paul's point is that only a decision by God himself could account for the role that Jacob was given. From God's perspective, the chosen people have always been elected by grace, not by human merit or status. And in case you're thinking, well, that's not fair, is it? Paul echoes your thoughts by responding in chapter 9 and verse 14, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. Now, much ink has been spilled concerning the tension in our understanding between God's sovereignty and man's free will. You'll know the names, John Calvin and uh, Jacob Arminius, and uh, ultimately we fall at the feet of the cross and we acknowledge that there are many things about God 
that are too high for us to comprehend. Years ago, I went to uh, our pastor in London at the time and uh, had some big things that I wanted him to explain to me. And he said, look at Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us. Having said that, this is not so much about election to salvation, but more about election to service. Romans 9 is not about where Jacob and Esau will spend eternity, but how God chose Israel to fulfill a special role in world history. And there seems to be a difference between election to service and election to salvation. Jesus chose 12 men, didn't he, to become his key apostles. One of them, Judas, fell from grace, which shows that election to service is, does not guarantee election to salvation. God chose Israel as his covenant people. And the fact that they are still a distinct people today, despite purges by various empires, there was the Babylonian Empire in around uh, 6th century BC, there was the Roman Empire in the 1st century, and then of course in, well not our time, but in recent history, there was the Third Reich of course. The fact that Israel still remains is somewhat incredible. And God has preserved Israel because he still has a special purpose for them. And this has nothing to do with land boundaries, nothing to do with the ongoing hostilities between the Israelis and the Palestinians. This is not condoning Israel's current stance or endorsing their politics. It's not about that. This is Romans 11. Paul uses the metaphor of an olive tree to reimagine Israel's future. And from Jewish roots, the Christian church has been grafted in like a wild olive shoot, chapter 11, verse 17. And at some point in the future, God's ultimate purpose is to use this Gentile ingrafting to stimulate new growth in Israel. 11 verse 20 says, Though Israel was broken off as a result of rejecting their Messiah, one day God will graft them back in, verse 24, chapter 11, and Jew and Gentile will finally bear fruit Together. So how do we receive salvation? Well, Romans 10.9 is a lovely verse, isn't it? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You may know that Caesar himself was known as Lord. 
and declare, to declare that Jesus is Lord is to say that Caesar isn't, which at that time was a, a radical thing to say and potentially life-costing. And in many countries today, that declaration could cost you your family. It could cost you your job. It could even cost you your life. To say that Jesus is Lord of your life is to acknowledge that he is the one we worship. He is the one who demands our allegiance. He is number one above everything and everyone else. And God calls us to openly declare our allegiance to him. Baptism is part of that. And on Easter Day, we will be celebrating with some who are going to be taking that fantastic step. Have you gone public yet with your faith? Or are you still hiding it? God is sovereign. He has a plan. And incredibly, you and I are part of that plan. So if people can experience salvation through their own good works or through their own DA, but only by calling on Jesus' name, then what about those who have never heard the gospel? Chapter 10, verse 14. Well, Paul has already addressed this in part in chapter 2 in his letter where he seems to say that people who genuinely have never heard the gospel, will be judged in the light of what they have heard and not what they haven't. And, well, the answer is probably not as clear as what we would like, but we can be assured that the judge of all the earth will do what is just and right. God, who is the very definition of compassion and love, and who is slow to anger, and who wants all mankind to be saved, will always make the right decision about every person who genuinely has never heard. But this is where you and I, as followers of Jesus, have a key part to play. We have a role in taking the good news about Jesus to others. And we need to share the gospel with everyone we can, whenever we can, and by whatever means we can. We are sent as heralds, calling out the name of Jesus and the news of what he has done so that many can be saved. God's good news is for everyone. God's burning desire is that everyone will be brought into his kingdom. In the middle of Paul's homily in chapters 9 to 11 came our reading this morning, chapter 10, and uh, particularly verses 14 and 15, which ask four questions. How can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe if they have never heard? And how can they hear about him unless Someone tells them, how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? 
And the picture given describes the role of of a herald who in ancient times was a news bearer. They would travel to key cities to announce major events in the marketplace and in the city streets. Some significant event may have occurred. There might have been a a victory in battle. There might have been a a leadership election. But nobody knows about it until the herald arrives. And there is no better news than Jesus. He has won a decisive battle for all of humanity. And he offers life in all its abundance for everyone who calls on his name. Imagine a herald who has been tasked with some extraordinary news, running over the mountains and the rugged terrain, With all urgency, you can imagine the state of their feet. They would be bruised, they'd be blistered, they'd be cut, they'd be bleeding. No wonder the recipients of the glorious news, when they realise the risks that have been taken by the herald and the strength which they've outpoured in this pursuit, no wonder they would say, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Chapter 10, verse 15. Jackie Pullinger said, God wants us to have soft hearts and hard feet. The trouble with so many of us is that we have hard hearts and soft feet. Last week, I I met with a friend who is an evangelist. He's not an up-on-the-stage evangelist. Uh, He's not an on-street preacher. He's somebody who's got such a powerful gift in sharing God's good news on a one-to-one basis. He has a passion for reaching out to others, and he seeks every opportunity to do so. He was telling me um, that, well, he's a retired jeweler, And he he used to work in Hatton Garden, but he now lives in a moneyed suburb of London. And uh, he was telling me that down his road, uh, he's got a neighbour. Obviously, they're all pretty wealthy in that area. And uh, his neighbour loves cars, and he's got a top-of-the-range Merc. And uh, my friend, who also likes cars, um, but he loves Jesus a lot more, and... uh, So he thought, how can I reach this guy for for Jesus? So he he saw him one day out washing his car, and uh, he went up to him, and he suggested that he bought him a cup of coffee. And the guy said, oh, that'd be nice. So he said, well, I'll do it on one condition, and that's you drive me to the coffee house. And the coffee house he chose was about 20 minutes away. So the neighbour laughingly agreed to it. Uh, He was pleased to show off his car and my friend spent the whole time sharing Jesus with him. Not all of us have that gift of evangelism, do we? But we are all called to evangelise. Peter writes, but in your hearts set apart Christ." As Lord, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness 
and respect. Now, when I mentioned the word evangelism, I suspect some of you were shuddering in your seat there. You've experienced evangelism before. You've even done it. You've shuddered. Because what you did was unnatural and it was uncomfortable. Well, we don't need to manipulate or force an opening. But if our passion is for others, then let's be alert to God's leading as he opens opportunities. We live in an age of confusion, don't we? And despair and loneliness, despite the increase in social media. We believe that God rules absolutely. And in an age where people are disillusioned and they're disillusioned with empty religion, we have the joy of being a people of hope and confidence. So as we close, here are some pointers. First of all, live out your faith where you are. Holy living and living action in your workplace, in your school, in your gym, in your university, in your club, in your social community. Let your walk and your talk be in unison. As a Christian, you will have a radically different perspective on life, a viewpoint that will challenge the materialism or the relativism of this age. But let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt. It appears that St. Francis of Assisi never said, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. So many times I've heard it quoted, I've probably quoted it myself, but apparently he never said it. What he did write was that all the friars should preach by their deeds which uh, is widely agreed that this was a sort of open rebuke to hypocrisy against word and deed not matching up. Our passage this morning says, how can they hear unless somebody tells them? We need to use words as well as ensuring our actions match up. Very often I've hidden behind that lovely um, misquote thought, okay, I'll let people see my actions and maybe that will bring them to Jesus. Never using words, but how we need to use words as well. There are times when we need to say something. So live out your faith where you are. Secondly, pray. Be alert to God. If you're intent on this, write two or three names down and pray for them on a regular basis. As we pray for them, it shows to God that we are serious about this, that we are offering ourselves for him to to use. And if we have intent, then we'll always be on the lookout for ways to connect with others. Gospel intent will shape our actions. What can we do to extend God's kingdom? Thirdly, Open your heart and open your home. Show hospitality. Sometimes our pride can be a barrier in this, can't it? We may think somehow that we are superior to others or or conversely we are inferior to others. 
And we don't want to expose, expose our vulnerabilities. We don't want to uh, show our lack of uh, ability to cook. Or uh, we don't want to show off our less than trendy home. We worry about what people may think about us. We need to show welcome as Jesus did, where he was the friend to sinners. Although he didn't condone their actions, he reached out in love. And sharing a meal is a great way to bless others and to point people to the Saviour in a warm and relaxed way. And finally, be church together. There's nothing like the local church. Aren't we so blessed here? So often I go to other churches which are very small and they struggle in their fellowship and so on. But we are so blessed here. We are a, a diverse collection of broken people, aren't we? But saved. And we come together to hear and respond to God and his word. We gather to encourage one another to worship and to revel in God's saving grace together against the backdrop of our fractured and divided world. It's here that we experience unity across generational and social and ethnic divides. It's a foretaste of heaven. And it's here that many seekers find a real home where there's warm-hearted welcome, where we share our lives and our food, where we celebrate together. It's where we receive together from God. And we uphold his word against the misconceptions of so many today in our nation and in our world. It's here where we encourage one another. And we build up each other. Meeting together in a local church is so important. The writer to Hebrews says, don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. If you love Jesus here this morning, then you are God's herald. So let's ensure that we share our faith and our testimony without jargon in a way that the listener can understand and relate. Let's pray. Father, speak to us, we pray. Challenge us. Maybe we've been a Christian for many years and we're not very good at sharing our faith. Lord, give us that gospel intent. Help us to realize there's an urgency about this. The days are short. There's so many people who need your gospel, need saving. Lord, the people that we meet day by day, the people in our social community, Give us a passion for them, a heart for them, and help us to think of ways in which we can reach them with your glorious message. We thank you that you involve us in this glorious work, that you don't do it all yourself, but you want us to be your mouthpiece. You want us to be your heralds. We remember the words of Jesus, go 
and make disciples. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. So give us an urgency this morning, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.